Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this day. We thank you for your word that you have given us in the Bible, that we might know you as you are, that we might know ourselves as we are, and that by faith we might be saved from what we deserve in our sin, that we might be encouraged in all the ways that we need encouragement in faith, that, Father, by your word we might be convicted of sin in all the ways we need to be convicted of sin. You know every one of us here this morning and what we need from your word, and we trust that by your providence, you will help us in faith and repentance and obedience for your glory and for our joy. And we pray this, trusting in your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, in another time and place, Job's friends could have easily passed as Hindu. His teaching sounds more like Hinduism than Christianity or Judaism or even Islam, for that matter. You could summarize Bildad's new speech as what goes around comes around. Hinduism is probably best known for its belief in karma. We like to laugh about karma. And particularly, we get a chuckle sometimes out of what we have dubbed instant karma. Like when someone is road raging and immediately they get into an accident themselves or a hockey fan is mocking one of the players and then an errant puck finds its way across the glass to him. Maybe you've heard the phrase, karma has a sense of humor. We think that way a lot. We do. We think like the world thinks. It's the most natural way to understand the world around us. Something bad happens. Often our first reaction is, they must have had it coming. And this is Hinduism. It's very old. One of the earliest recorded scriptures in Hinduism, the Bri Adaran Yaka, I do not pretend that I have just said that correctly, Upanishad states that karma works like this. This is from the 7th century BCE. Now, as a man is like this or like that, according as he acts and according as he behaves, so he will be. A man of good acts will become good. A man of bad acts, bad. He becomes pure by pure deeds, bad by bad deeds. And here they say that a person consists of desires. And as is his desire, so is his will. And as is his will, so is his deed. And whatever deed he does, that he will reap. Well, that is exactly how Job's friend talks. Bildad. The more wicked you are, the more you should be afraid something bad is going to happen to you. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you find yourself afraid that something bad is going to happen to you? And why? For Bildad, the ethic of the world works like this. If you are a bad person, then bad thing after bad thing, terror upon terror, all the way to the king of terrors will come upon you. 
Well, is that what you say? Is that true? Is that the limited, functional, fundamental way that the universe works? Maybe it's the way sometimes we wished it would work. Bildad looks at Job's suffering, his great, immense, immeasurable suffering, and assumes Job must have done something wrong. And so because of the way the world works, what goes around comes around, Job ought to also be very afraid for what might come next in his life. Look in what Marilyn read, Job chapter 18, the second speech by Bildad. Verse 2, How long will you hunt for words? Consider then and we will speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? By the way, the conversation has divulged, spiraled downward between Job and his friends. It is basically now to the point of, you're stupid, no, you're stupid. Why are we so stupid in your sight? You talk to us like we're cows, you who tear yourself in anger. He says, shall the earth be forsaken for you, or the rock be removed out of its place? Job, you act like God has wronged you unjustly, but we all know how karma works. We all know how the world works. Job, for you to deny that the way the world works is bad people get bad things and good people get good things, you you would have to forsake the world itself. See, verse 4, shall the earth be forsaken for you? Job has been suggesting to his friends that he did not do anything to deserve his suffering. In fact, we get the perspective in Job chapters 1 through 3 that this is God's own perspective that Job did not deserve all of his suffering. That God himself said to Satan, Do you know anyone like my servant Job who is blameless and upright and who fears the Lord? God, in allowing Satan to take and do what he did to Job, knew himself that Job did not deserve this because of his sin. Yet he allowed it. Job lost his animals. He lost his house. He lost his children. He lost his health. But he was a blameless and righteous man. And Job's friends just could not accept that. To accept Job's assertion would be like forsaking the whole order of the earth. Okay, so for you, Job, let's just say there's no such thing as gravity. Okay, Job, for you, let's just say the, the, the sun rotates around the earth. No, Job, that's not the way the world works. We're not going to undo the fabric of the universe for your claim about righteousness and suffering. We know what goes around comes around Job. And so Bildad wants Job to be afraid. Verse 5. Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. His strong steps are shortened, And his own schemes throw him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet. And he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare lays hold of him. A rope is hidden for him in the ground. 
a trap for him in the path. I take this section to mean that both spiritually and physically, the life of the wicked in Bildad's perspective is haunted with terrors. He's in the tent at night and then a candle goes out. You know that feeling when you're alone in a building and the electricity just suddenly and randomly goes out. What's your first reaction? Well, that's, that's spooky. Job's friend says a trap seizes the wicked by the heel. Every, everywhere he steps, he's stepping through a field of, of traps. As he walks, you can't see it, but there's a rope under the ground, kind of like one of those ropes in the cartoons in the jungle under the leaves on the path. It, you don't see it, but you step into it and it snatches you up and hangs you up by your ankle. That's the whole life of the wicked, Job, Bildad says. You're experiencing that, and you should be very afraid. If you continue to walk in this line of righteousness when you're actually in sin, you have more of this coming for you, Job. Is that how your life, how your life goes from day to day? Afraid? Afraid of what might happen next? Afraid that maybe something should happen because your life is too good. What a terrifying life. Bildad's whole point is that the whole life of the wicked is terror upon terror on every side. Pick up in verse 11. The one who was wicked, Job, terrors frighten him on every side and chase him at his heels. His strength is famished and calamity is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the parts of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. He is torn from the tent in which he trusted and is brought to the king of terrors. Everything is a terror. The, the idea here is like you're caught, in, caught in, a, in a haunted house and everywhere you turn there's another demon or another trick or another misdirection or another mirror. And so what happens in verse 12? He says his strength is famished. The, the one who was wicked, Job, his strength is famished. And every other time this word is used in the Old Testament, it means hungry. His strength gets hungry. He's weak in the knees. He, he can't get up. He can't go to work. He can't focus. Because he's so terrified. You live your life like this, Bildad says, then eventually you come to meet the king of terrors. This is most likely a reference to death itself. Death itself. Which seems to be what's described in the verses following. So Bildad is painting, painting the picture that if you're in sin against God, you're going to go from terror to terror, and then eventually you'll meet death. In verse 13, it will start to consume your limbs. And then you'll finally meet the king of terrors, the most terrifying thing of all, death itself. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you afraid to die? Are you afraid of death? Have you contemplated that final moment when your body will stop breathing and you'll never open your eyes again? Bildad suggests... Terror upon terror upon terror and then death. And here's the lot of the man who is wicked, he says. It gets darkest at the end and after death. Verse 15, in his tent dwells that which is none of his. Sulfur is scattered over his habitation. His fields are fruitless. 
His roots dry up beneath and His branches wither above. He's entirely withered. His memory perishes from the earth and He has no name in the street. He is thrust from light into darkness and driven out of the world. Driven out of the world. He has no posterity or progeny among His people. No survivor. No one following after Him where He used to live. They of the West are appalled at His day and horror seizes them of the East. Bildad says, Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of Him who knows not God. Oh, Job, the wicked man dies with no children and no reputation and no one comes to his funeral. Everyone on every side abhors the wicked man. This is what it's like for those who don't know God, Job. This explains your life and your suffering, Job. This explains where you're headed. You should watch out, Job. It's karma all the way to the end. My friends, how are you doing this morning? Are you afraid? Afraid of what's going to happen next? Afraid that God is Himself out to get you or that karma is circling back around for you somehow in this life or another? Here's Job's response. Two main responses. Number one, Job says, Calamity has already come upon me. The thing you are threatening me with has already happened to me. And secondly, my Redeemer lives. Job chapter 19, verse 1 through 22. Read that again. Job answered him and said, My calamity has already come upon me. How long will you torment me and break me into pieces with words? These ten times, the the perfect amount of fullness you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed His net about me. Behold, I cry violence, but I'm not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. In other words, I've asked God to make this right and He's not. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass and He has set darkness upon my paths, just like you said. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone and my hope is pulled up like a tree, like you said. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast their siege and ramp against me and encamp around my tent, as he said. He has put my brothers far from me and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. Like you said, my relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I've become a foreigner in their eyes. They call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife. I can, I can relate to that one. I'm a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me. And those whom I loved turned against me. My bones stick to my skin, to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. I'm barely even alive. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on you, O you, my friends. For the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? 
Job, in essence, is saying, terror has already filled my life on every side. God has already caught me in His net. I'm there. What, What bad thing is going to happen except to die? Bildad's trying to scare Job about what could happen. About his state, Job's first response is, what else could happen? And then he proclaims to his friend, my Redeemer lives. Job used a phrase that is filled with meaning. Redeemer. I know my Redeemer lives. What could this have meant in ancient Israeli context? Recall what Bildad said in chapter 18. Look again at verses 17 through 19. One of the last things he says is the wicked man, his memory perishes from the earth. No one even remembers the wicked man who dies. And and he has no name in the street. No one even remembers him. Hey, remember Job? I don't don't, know. Who's that? He's thrust from light into darkness and driven. He's out of the world. Verse 19 Bildad says he has no posterity or progeny among his people. There's no one left. There's no more Job's children. There's no more Job's last name. No survivor where he used to live. What does Bildad say? No kinsmen, no children, no siblings. That is what the wicked get. What does Job say? Even if I have no progeny left in the world, my Redeemer lives. Even if there's no one else in the world, my Redeemer lives. Job knows that God will be the last one living on the earth. The earth is not whirling aimlessly in a sea of karma. For Job, it is headed toward God Himself. Every single person in the world is not caught up in a a swirl of good flowing to good and bad flowing to bad. But Job knows that there is a living God at the center of existence. When we die, we go to meet God who made the world and everything in it. Job knows that his only hope is that his case His justification, His vindication, His salvation is in God. That God would somehow vindicate Him as righteous. Bildad says, you will meet the king of terror's death itself. And Job's message to his friend is, you will meet the living God. Look how he finishes Job chapter 19 verse 23 to 27. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with iron iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. It seems that the Lord has answered this desire as we read it today. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, after this flesh is gone, yet in my flesh I shall shall see God. This is strange talk. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I'll see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. My heart longs for that to happen. 
What does it mean, my Redeemer lives? I alluded to it, to redeem by acting as a kinsman. To redeem as a relative left behind settling your affairs. You find this word, Redeemer, this kinsman Redeemer, you find this word a lot in Genesis. You find this a lot in Leviticus, in the law, and you might guess you find it in Ruth. That story, that account of the widow being saved by her kinsman Redeemer. Christopher Ash explains this phrase, kinsman redeemer, redeemer, this way. He says, if you were murdered, your kinsman redeemer saw to it that your murderer was punished. If your share in the promised land was under threat, your kinsman redeemer would safeguard it for you. If your widow was childless, your kinsman redeemer would give her a child. In every way, your kinsman redeemer stood for you when you could not stand for yourself. And this is actually part of the law of Moses. It's not just a good story. It's part of God's law that He gives to Israel. That means it is part of His holy character for there to be a kinsman redeemer in His people. Just one example from a couple of chapters where we see this the most, Leviticus chapters 25 and 26. If you go to Leviticus 25, 23 to 27, you see that God speaks about the land, and he says the land, the promised land, the land of the people of Israel, shall not be sold in perpetuity. God says, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And I brought you to this land. And in all the country that you possess, once Israel got into the promised land where God led them, in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and he has to sell part of his property. In other words, he finds himself in financial struggle and he has to sell part of his property. Then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. And if a man has no one to redeem it and then himself becomes prosperous and finds some sufficient means to redeem it, then let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. Bildad says, the wicked will die and have no posterity, no progeny. But Job is firm. My kinsman, redeemer, lives and I will see him after I die and he will make my right my life then. Job does not believe that he is left to an impersonal, unconcerned force or retribution in the world. He believes that God is there and that God is and will provide a kinsman redeemer. Someone to make things right even after Job dies. Bildad says you're going to die and you're going to lose everything. Job says, yeah, but my redeemer lives. Do you have something who will be alive for you when you die? You may have family who will attend your funeral. You may have someone picked out already to be the executor for your estate when you pass away. But who will be there to execute justice for you? Who will be there to deal with your debt of sin when you die 
and meet God. Only Jesus, who died and yet lives, can serve you this way. What hope is there in a life of fear, of unending karma, and the fear of the king of terrors, death itself? Job's friends want him to be afraid of living and dying. Be afraid that bad things have happened to you, that more bad things are coming, Job. You are living a terrified life. You should be terrified because of your sin. You're going to lead yourself right to death and be forgotten, Job. Job says, my Redeemer, my kinsman, is alive. He lives Unknowingly, Job could only be speaking about Jesus Christ. The man who is a brother to mankind and yet never dies. Who who died and will yet never die again. Paul talks about it like this in Romans in the New Testament chapter 6 when he's explaining the good news of Jesus. He says, if we have been united with Jesus in a death like His, in other words, if we died inside to ourselves and our sin like He died on the cross, then we will certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Paul says, we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin, that flesh, the skin that Job was talking about, might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. I mean, isn't this what every religion is really trying to offer? How to get out of sin? <clears throat> How do I get out of being bad? Well, through Jesus Christ, by being united to Him, we're no longer enslaved to sin. We don't have to sin. We're not owned by sin. We're not meeting the wrath of sin. We're not going to die because of sin. Not if you find yourself in faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says, For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. Jesus does not live under the reign of the fear of the King of Terrors. Jesus is not even close to afraid of what Bildad was talking about. He does not live under fear or the reign of the king of terrors. Jesus does not submit to, nor is he afraid of death. (coughs) Jesus has conquered the grave. (coughs) He's raised from the dead. This is how Jesus' resurrection (coughs) is different than karma and reincarnation. (coughs) In reincarnation, your bad things from the past, 
even past lives can catch up with you even after death. But the whole point of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to show that Jesus' death on the cross actually did forgive sins. When Jesus rose from the dead, it was a way that God said that penalty, that debt he took into the grave, it's been paid. Death no longer terrorizes Jesus. Death no longer terrorizes those who are in Christ, in faith. <coughs> so if your faith, excuse me, if your faith is in Christ, and you are united to Christ by faith, then you need not fear death either. Bad things are going to happen to you in your life. We live in a cursed world. There's a spell on this world because of sin. Bad things are going to happen, but you need not fear that those bad things are God punishing you because of your sin only. If our sin is paid for and Jesus rose from the dead, then we have, as it were, when we die, a kinsman redeemer on the other side of death. We don't need to wonder what accident is waiting for us around the corner. We don't need to be afraid that karma is out to get us. And we certainly should not believe that doing some good things are simply going to balance out the bad things. This means that we can go through life taking great risks for the name of God. We can be very generous with our possessions. We can be worried more about others than ourselves. We can relate to strangers with generosity and kindness and patience. We can love and <coughs> be gracious to people who are not like us. <coughs> we can lead our families to give up our lives for God. We need not try to protect ourselves from unknown dangers. The king of the whole world has died for us. We don't have to live afraid. But if you do not have Christ, if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, if you're not united with Jesus Christ, then odds are high, Job is saying, you're probably not afraid enough of your life. Look at chapter 19, verse 26. After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. I can't wait. I'm longing for that day. If you say how we will pursue him, and the root of the matter is found in him, that is in Job. Here's what Job says to his friends. Be afraid of the sword. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. What's Job saying? You want me to be afraid of a rope on the ground, a net, or, or a trap, or, or the lights going out of my tent. You, you want me to be afraid of, of even death, but I'm telling you, Bildad, you should be afraid of the sword of judgment in the hands of the living God. First today, if you're here and you're not a Christian, are you afraid of the right things in the right proportion? Are you really afraid of getting cancer in your body? 
Maybe even because of something that you've done. Maybe that you deserve that. But not afraid for sin against God in your soul. Have you been really afraid that bad things might happen? But not really come to consider yet the moment when you meet God who is holy and who will judge you for your sin. Throughout the Old Testament, the sword is the instrument of God's justice upon His enemies. Think about the sword of David and Goliath, for example. At the end of the battle, David has Goliath's own sword in his hand, which he uses to separate Goliath's head from his body. Without Christ having died for us and raised from the grave as a kinsman redeemer to redeem us from our sin and from death, without Christ, if we didn't have Jesus, and it was just us and God, are we really afraid enough? Job's instruction to his friends is be afraid. Being afraid of a karmaic kind of swirling of justice in the world and even being afraid of death itself are below what is truly, truly terrifying. That the living God judges sinners in holiness. Bildad haunts Job with a life of death and terror about ropes and nets and lights Job tells Bildad straight out, you be afraid of the sword of the living God. You do not need to fear the sword of God if you trust in the Savior of God. Christ, who died for your sin and who raised from the dead, who will never die again. Jesus is no good to us if He died and He rose and then one day He's going to die again Then our kinsman Redeemer before God is going to be no good to us in the end. But He did die. He did raise and He will never die again. He lives today. And because of this, fearlessness is a great witness for you to your family and to the world. Fearlessness is a great witness to your family and to the world. What political meltdown has you afraid today? What inflation is scaring you today? What war at home or overseas is making you nervous? What political election has your confidence wrapped up in it? God is in control. A gospel conversation with talking about the scariest things in the world might be, that's terrible. But you know what? I'm not afraid of bad things happening. Just say that out loud. You you want to start talking with someone about the gospel this week, about the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection? Talk about the news. Everyone's talking about the news. No one wants to talk about politics because that's touchy, but Ukraine, inflation, whose fault it is. I don't want to take time to go through the numbers, but our surveys today are showing we're a scared people. We're scared in America. We're scared of political corruption. We're scared of war. Currently, right now, we're scared of inflation. 
above three-quarters of, of America will say we are afraid or very afraid of these things. Changing from 2021 to 2022, something like an increase from 18 to 54 percent of people the age 18 to 26 are afraid that they're going to be involved in a mass shooting. We're afraid. Everywhere we go, we're afraid that bad things are going to happen. And the whole book of Job and what Job is talking to build that is that God is sovereign over everything that looks to you like chaos and uncontrolled evil. There's not some impersonal first swirling around the globe. God is doing His will and His plan in His time. What's happening in Job's life? Why did he lose his camels and his donkeys and his houses and his seven sons and his three girls? Why did he lose all of those things? Neither Job nor his friends know God's purposes. They don't know. They don't know why God would allow a miscarriage or a panic attack or the loss of a loved one or inflation or that car accident or cancer. They don't know why God would allow those things. But Job has resolved in this that God has not promised us that He will tell us everything that He is doing and why. But if our Redeemer lives, we need not be afraid. You don't have to be afraid because Jesus has died for your sins and risen from the grave. And if you have faith in Jesus Christ, your Redeemer lives. But this is the way the world thinks. Joe, you just want to turn the world upside down Suggest that God's purposes are far beyond punishing sin. This week, we think this way, the world thinks this way. The Department of Energy tweeted this week, we know all too well that if we don't act swiftly to transition to clean energy, that we're telling future generations, you're on your own, kid. The Department of Energy tweeted the same tweet, that's bad karma and out of the question. So here are 13 things the Department of Energy has done over the past month to invest in America's future. Because that's what America needs in the energy sector more than anything, is good karma. I don't know, maybe they're joking. I don't know. Can you see that this is not the final summary for how the world works? Can you see beyond that to see that there's a free, righteous, holy God who created the world, who oversees the world, who judges the world himself according to his own holiness? And that it's only by his love and his mercy He's made a way to redeem the world. Can you see that Christ came to die for our sin and raised from the grave so that we and the world can be redeemed? Even the king of terrors submits to Jesus. This severity of God and the grace of God both teach us to fear God. That's Job's instruction to his friends, be afraid. 
When we see God in all His severity, in His sword, in all His mercy, in the Savior Jesus Christ. It teaches us to fear and relieves our fears at the same time. Every Christian, every person, every day is not so peachy. And you, you can begin to live in fear that something bad is going to happen. And you never know what might happen. You never know what someone might be going through today. What might happen to someone tomorrow? What might happen to you this evening? But I want you to know today, one of the things that Job is teaching us is that no matter how we might feel or how we might be afraid of what's coming, we ought not always trust our feelings. We ought not all just trust every fear. We ought to think is our fear in right proportion to reality of God? How does Jesus Christ enter the equation of what I'm afraid of and why I'm so afraid of those things? My Jesus and an idea of God owning and creating the world create some fears that weren't there and alleviate those fears at the same time. Think about the day John Newton introduced his song Amazing Grace. John Newton was actually a pastor who also wrote songs, although he's most known for writing the song Amazing Grace. He preached the day that he released, well, if you could say that, released the song Amazing Grace, January 1st, New Year's Day, a Friday, a Friday morning service for New Year's Day, January 1st, 1773. Along with his sermon, John Newton presented a song that he wrote called Amazing Grace. And the song was actually an illustration for his sermon. One might think John Newton went home that day blissful and amazed at the grace of God. But instead, here's what John Newton wrote the day they first sung Amazing Grace at his church. He says, I preached this forenoon, this morning, from 1 Chronicles 17, verse 16 and 17. He says, Hope I was enabled to speak with some liberty but I found that my own heart was sadly unaffected. Can you imagine that? The author of the song Amazing Grace comes home from the first time he introduced this song. I found my own heart sadly unaffected. Someone else wrote in their journal that day, a man named William Cowper, a longtime friend of John Newton. William Cowper was familiar with suffering, like Job. Five of Cowper's younger siblings died infant deaths, only to see then his mother die giving birth to their sixth child, the only other one besides William Cowper to survive. As a teenager, William was sent 30 miles away from home to attend school where he was confronted daily by bullies. He faced oppression as an, as an adult, aggravated by fears of spiritual damnation. He found some reliefs in the sermons of his cousin, Reverend Martin Maiden, who preached God's free grace to sinners. At night, however, the terrors returned so much that his family and his friends suggested a hospitalization at St. Albans. 
William Cowper stayed there for over a year, fluctuating from moments of utter despair to great delight on the promises of the gospel, which his friends and even his doctor kept reminding him. On January 1st, 1773, the same day John Newton brought amazing grace to the world, William Cowper felt the oncoming of a crisis similar to what he had experienced 10 years earlier, which led him to be hospitalized. William Cowper was afraid, afraid of what was coming. He felt the oncoming of a crisis similar to what he experienced 10 years earlier. But on that Sunday, that afternoon, he picked up his pen. We can't know, but perhaps the same moment that John Newton was writing in his journal, he picked up his pen and he wrote the hymn, God moves in mysterious ways. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sins, but trust Him for grace. Behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. John Newton would soon bring William Cowper to live with him for a year, caring for him, taking daily walks with him, reminding Cowper of the gospel daily. Bad things are going to happen. Dark days will come. We need not fear, however, that our judgment is looming around the corner. Even if amazing grace doesn't give you feelings today, like maybe it once did, even if you're here this morning, and the feeling here with the gathering, or if your life group this week, or your devotion Tuesday morning, if you find yourself feeling afraid, look beyond what you can see. Look beyond the frowning providence Beyond our dark days 2,000 years ago, Jesus died for your sin and He broke through the grave. Beyond what we can see today, Jesus is living as a man, as a first among brothers, our kinsman redeemer, with His blood in His hands offered to God on our behalf for our sin. Christ crucified with men's nails that we might not see God's sword. Jesus raised never to die again. Do not fear. Our kinsman, Redeemer, lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the providence of this word for this day. And we trust that, Father, there might be many here who have come today in fear. Maybe more afraid than we even realize, more stressed and anxious from day to day. Would you help us by your Spirit trust in Christ? Our sin has been forgiven. Your judgment is not waiting, but has been poured out on Christ. And that our debt in this life and next has been paid through Jesus' death and resurrection. Lord, we pray for those who might come here hearing of Christ for the first time. 
or hearing of Christ for the thousandth time. May our souls be enlivened by your spirit to see, to have faith that we can go through this week and not be afraid. Father, help us as your church live courageous, fearless lives, not being afraid of what may happen, walking in trust and obedience and generosity and love that you may be glorified and our own joy may increase. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.